Australia is, uh, is going to rough patch ahead. It's got to figure out how to survive in a world where the American guarantee means less and less. Now, in my lifetime, we gave up on North Korea, and we gave up on South Vietnam, we gave up on Laos, we gave up on Cambodia, we gave up on Taiwan, we gave up on Afghanistan. You know, America can lose wars. Well, we didn't really lose a war. We just went home. You know, we, we had a stalemate in most of these places. And we, but, but smaller nations can't afford to lose a war because they disappear from the face of the earth. And so we, uh, Australians are going to have to get very clever in this very dangerous and uncertain world. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Allpike, and joining me once again is Mr. Jonathan Astro. Uh, John, uh, are you in for a bit of an, uh, an intellectual journey? Well, I think you're talking about our interview with Joe Syracuse, uh, with incredible history and, and life. I think this is going to be session one of, of many sessions to come because we really only just scratched the surface. So I should just say that listeners should prepare themselves for a wide ranging discussion. We covered a lot of stuff, uh, you know, but I think you just go on the journey. I just want to read out uh, Joe's bio quickly here because... We didn't get the chance. He just launched. <laughs> so, born and raised in Chicago and a longtime resident of Australia, uh, Joe studied at the University of Denver and the University of Vienna and received his PhD at the University of Colorado. He has worked at Merrill Lynch in Boston and New York, the University of Queensland, and for three years served as vi- senior visiting fellow in the Case Center for Ethics, Law, Justice, and Governance at Griffith University. He's also f- uh, known for his research and commentary on United States foreign policy, American politics, and Australian-American security relations. Uh, some of his books, America and the Cold War, 1941 to 1991, uh, Nuclear Weapons, a very short introduction, The Death Penalty and U.S. Diplomacy, A Global History of United Arms Race, Language of Terror, How Neuroscience Influences Political Speech in the United States, and most recently, Diplomatic History, a very short introduction. Uh, so I, I don't know what else to say, Ricky. I, I think he's got 50 books under his, under his belt, doesn't he? Yes. It's phenomenal. Yes, an incredible uh, uh, output. So um, that's that. That explains everything. <laughs> All right. We'll see you on the other side. See you there. I was born on July 6, nineteen forty-four, with a uh, with the Second World War waging uh, in Europe and in Asia. And you know, the, the day I was born, nuclear weapons hadn't been invented yet. Hitler was in his bunker, and uh, Franklin Roosevelt was in the White House, and Churchill was at number ten, and Joe Stalin was in Kremlin. And, you know, the really interesting thing about my generation, and it kind of bleeds over into the baby boomers, is that my generation has been at war for 78 years, okay, beginning with the Second World War and then the, the early Cold War period, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, uh, the conflicts with Iran and then other places. Uh, and and, and my, my generation has only known war. And so I, I've had a chance to see things close up, you know, and I was a kid in high school or just starting university, President um, Kennedy was shot and we all got to witness that kind of thing and we got to see the guy who shot him, et cetera, et cetera. Then when I, I came to Australia at the age of 29 on February 2nd, 1973, I noticed a very interesting thing as I was beginning my classes at the University of Queensland, that I was talking to a generation of Australians who had grown up on uh, listening to the wireless instead of television. And they, you know, they were very thoughtful. You know, they they could see things in their heads, and that's I I, I always liked the the uh, the audio uh, medium because I think it's very challenging. I think it has great impact. But the the thing is, is that um, uh, uh, I was dealing with people 
who had lived without television. And then I began to think over the years, and I've written about 54 books on American politics, history, and foreign policy. My main field is nuclear weapons and presidential politics, is that this, uh, the impact of television bringing war into your, uh, into your uh, living room. And, and in the 50s and 60s, Americans used to sit around the dinner table watching uh, television, whether it was the, uh, uh, the, end of the end of the Korean War or was the beginning of the Vietnam War. We, we got to see that really close up. And, and I like to think that uh, America today is a product of both television and the violence accumulated in the 1950s and 60s. Now, I, I make no, no, no small point here because, you know, I, when people say, when did I, I, I get these requests all over the world. I mean, why are Americans killing each other? Well, um, I, I think a lot of this begins, you need a timeline. <clears throat> it begins on August 1st, 1966, when Charles Whitman got up to the top of the uh, University of T Texas Tower and started killing people. He was a sniper, former, I think. Scorpio from uh, Dirty yeah. Harry. And, and he's, up in the, he's up in the tower. He's just um, uh, killed his, his wife and mother with knives, probably to save them the pain. And then he kills all these people. And we're all watching this in real time. And it's about the same time that uh, Americans are watching the war in Vietnam. Keep in mind, during the Second World War, Americans weren't allowed to see atrocities. You know, all, all the, new, all, all the uh, pictures from the front were censored. Uh, they showed American bodies in one piece and the enemy bodies in one piece. It wasn't all blood and guts. But during the Vietnam War, we started to get uh, uh, images coming through uh, the, the American homes, which I think brutalized Americans. And it also powered the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, the women's movement and everything else. It, it made it more violence. Now, I'm not going to kid you here. In the 60s, I was... Uh, a radical. We didn't throw bombs or anything, but we did some things we're not very proud of. And uh, we, 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 we saw a lot of things, and a lot of it was violent. And, and in the 60s, uh, no, more, no fewer than 25 American cities burned. I mean, they talk about this, this insurrection in Washington. My God, in 1968, Washington was burning. Hundreds of people were being killed and maimed, and had soldiers in the streets, and Neighborhoods were burning down. I mean, America was burning in the 60s. And so you, you get to see all this incredible violence. And then the same thing, uh, at the same time, if Americans in the 60s, that is university students like myself, we, uh, we, got, to see, we got to meet people you, you, you don't meet anymore. You know, they used to go to the campuses and try to uh, not raise money, but to raise support. I mean, one day when in 1967, I'm sitting in my my political science course at the University of Denver, and in walks Robert, uh, Martin Luther King, um, talking about uh, connecting the, the the civil rights movement with the war in Vietnam, where he uh, I think he just about um, uh, about to give that famous speech to a church in '67, where he, he he says America is the greatest source of evil or violence in the world because of the Vietnam War. I mean, I think I think the Vietnam War. Is the is kind of the porthole to the modern era if we have to exp if we have to explain things, and so you know and during that war uh, millions of people died, probably um, uh, a million North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese soldiers, and probably maybe a million million and a half uh, civilians, and we all saw that we saw the bombing raids and everything like that, and I think it uh, 
it hardens you the way it hardened the uh, hardens the uh, hardened the citizens of Rome. That's why they had uh, gladiators in those pits is to, to bloody generations, one generation after the other. And what I'm trying to say is that my generation, from the those born at the end of the Second World War, have known nothing but war or the preparation for war. I mean, uh, and so when when America uh, it, it proves to be incredibly brutalized, um, I, I, I'm I'm not not surprised. I mean, I think uh, once you start to see these images and they become uh, lyrical, you know, in the '60s, I was a big fan of cinema. And there was a great movie by Sam Peckinpah, The Wild Bunch, where, where if you just see it, you know, uh, hundreds of people are dying, but they're dying in a kind of a poetic or balletic fa- way. It's lyrical. You know, people are dying lyrically. It's, it's not blood and guts exactly. It's sort of like... The Dance uh, of Death. That's a Dance of Death. And, and, and I think you start, you start to get used to that. And, and, and when, when Whitman comes along, no one makes the connection between the brutalization in American life and guys like Whitman climbing these towers. Now, if you look uh, carefully at his biography, it said he had mental illness. Well, I think anybody who wants to kill anybody has got a mental illness, as a matter of fact. But the point is, is that uh, I think you can sheet it all home to these 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 kinds of things. Now, I was part of this uh, Vietnam era. I was one of 27 million American men who were um, uh, of draft age during the Vietnam War. That That's the baby boom. Uh, as I recall, and there were about 27 American million American women too, who uh, who made their uh, who put their own stamp on on this particular group of people. Anyway, uh, our generation was about uh, going to war, serving the United States, and uh, we were told uh, a number of things. Now, uh, I I was a a very counterintuitive child. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, I grew up on the uh, north and south side of Chicago, and then we were just youngsters. And in the third and fourth grade, we were told to get under our desks while um, a thermonuclear blast took place in Chicago. And then we watched Bert the Turtle cartoons about uh, how to duck and cover and survive a thermonuclear blast. Look, I knew that was bullshit when I was about eight or nine years old. It just didn't make any sense. And it's led me to write 10 books on nuclear weapons. And I always go back to Bert the Turtle. And it was an enormous effort by the American government to uh, propagandize the American people in believing they could survive a thermonuclear war. Then we found out in the 60s that uh, American governments, the American government in the event of a uh, uh, a nuclear war, general nuclear war with the Soviet Union, were going to go down and retreat into their five-star bunkers while the rest of Americans were going to scramble for their lives. And I think that had a... (laughs) A deep effect on people, you know, like these these bums who get us into these wars uh, are down in some bunker in Virginia or Maryland while everybody else is uh, killing each other for a can of strawberries. I mean, it just didn't make any sense. And so, you know, you start to get this, these fringe groups who look not like they're the center of America. And you know, I figured, well, you know, the government has abandoned us. And I think government hasn't done a very good job since the 60s because they've, um, uh, you know, the American economy and I'm not a big Noam Chomsky fan, but you know Chomsky's right about one thing, and that's the uh, the American economy only thrives when it's at war or prepares for war. Now, I found out in my nuclear studies through the Brookings Institute audit that uh, between 1940, the beginning of the Manhattan Project, to 1991, when the Soviet Union uh, collapsed, that the United States, uh, the third highest expenditure in American life, 
was nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons platforms, and nuclear weapons research. So from 1940 right up and through uh, the end of the Cold War, the nuclear scientists and the technicians and the military industrial complex they're making this enormous amount of money. That is, they're looking for, it gives them a reason, you know, the raison. raison. And, 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 and they're, 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 they're getting one blank check after the other to create a nuclear weapon, to deliver the nuclear weapon, to overcome the nuclear weapon. We go right from, nu from the Manhattan Project to the Star Wars. Same, some of the same scientists, uh, like Ed Teller, who are working on this kind of thing. And so uh, when I say the third highest expenditure, number one was Social Security, number two was uh, federal salaries, and number three was nuclear weapons. And today, uh, one of the highest expenditures in American life is the modernization of nuclear weapons. You know, it it, it just just keeps rolling out. And of course, uh, it's only a matter of time before we have some kind of uh, uh, a nuclear war or limited nuclear war. I mean, I don't think we can escape it. As a matter of fact, but the the point is, is that uh, when when uh, I was one year old. We, we dropped a bomb on Hiroshima, which was a weapon of war. Uh, the second one looked more like the vengeance of war. You know, you can justify the first one as an act of war. The second bomb on Nagasaki, uh, there's almost no justification for it because the Japanese are all but defeated. I mean, you know, we, uh, General Curtis Lee May had uh, bombed Japanese cities. They were reduced to ruins. I mean, the Japanese couldn't resist it too much longer. But uh, Americans, as Jimmy Carter liked to say, are naturally impatient people, and they um, uh, they wanted to finish off the Japanese as, as soon as possible. And, you know, today people say, oh, Putin may use a nuclear weapon. I got news for you. The good guys use nuclear weapons, and they don't do it from a position of weakness. They do it from a position of strength. <laughs> this idea that people only use the, 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 the doomsday bomb when they're up against the wall, that's not true at all. People use them when they... Uh, when they know they can survive. So anyway, my, my generation uh, saw these things, and we saw the confluence of uh, the anti-war protest, the war itself, the anti-war protest, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the Hispanic movement. Uh, there was even a, the gay movement in the 60s, and all these, all these things kind of coalesced together. And my generation, that is the age of Vietnam, the 27 million American men and the other 27 million American women, uh, they all expected America to... Uh, to be a little different because they had discovered the essence of American life, which was violence. You know, there's an expression in the 60s that uh, violence is as American as cherry pie. And that was a discovery in the 60s. And um, uh, I think that's um, that was no small thing. I mean, America was always a violent place. I mean, it was born out of the, the rifle of a gun against the, the British. And, of course, they, they, they brought down the Indians, who were just as violent as the Americans. So there was all these wars going on the frontier. And then we had these wars with Spain, the First World War, and, and then the Second World War. And then the, in the entire um, period from 1945 to 1991, the organizing principle in American life is the Cold War. Everything's built around it. Education, weapons, the economy. And, uh, the, the prosperity and everything else, and then the, the the war against communism was replaced by the war on terrorism, which is very convenient for the military-industrial complex. And then um, we um, we we replaced it. We're trying to replace it now with uh, a war against China, which I think is uh, is a disaster because uh, we have no quarrel with the Chinese, nothing that we can't settle. And and now they've um, 
they they brought um, they, they brought Putin out. You know, we had a chance to settle this thing with Putin over Ukraine about 12 months ago, and we chose to ignore it. And so then he goes crazy, and we say, "Gee, we don't know why he went crazy." And, you know, all he wanted to do was take nuclear weapons off his borders. That's all. He wanted to do what John Kennedy did, and that is keep them plenty far away from American shores. Anyway, we, we, we got involved in all these wars, and we got involved in all these violence. And at the same time, um, uh, America was um, uh, uh, seemed to have a, a paucity of politicians who could sort of escape the mold. You know, Abraham Lincoln escaped the mold, and he could do something. Woodrow Wilson could escape the mold. He could do what public opinion, and same with Franklin Roosevelt. But in the last 20, 30 years, we've had politicians who frankly aren't very good and who can get you killed, as a matter of fact. You know, I, I, I hate to say this, uh, but uh, we have been led by some really stupid people. I was just in Washington for uh, 11 days. I was giving a conference uh, paper at, uh, <coughs> at the Carnegie about how Australia wanted nuclear weapons in the 60s. The only reason it signed the MPT is because no one would give them any nuclear weapons and no one would work with them. Brits wouldn't work with them, the Americans wouldn't work with them. And, and when I was over there, I noticed something very interesting, uh, walking around and talking to people in Chicago as well. And that is where I come from. And that is, um, you know, that there's, there's a lot of things that it looks like mirrors, you know. We got fat people pretending to be thin, thin people trying to be fat. We got smart people pretending to be stupid. And we got stupid people pretending to be smart. And, 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 no, and no one seems to know what the hell the difference is. And we got these really strange people running the show, surrounded by uh, millennial and ex-generation challenges. And uh, what I, I find amusing about America, whether it's Joe Biden or, or President, former President Trump, et cetera, is that the, and even Hillary, is the baby boomers are holding on for all they're worth. You know, they want one more... Uh, roll of the dice, you know. They want one to, more ride. One more. They want one more ride, and uh, you know they're not doing a very good job. And Americans, of course, they don't know when to quit politics. You have to literally throw them out of office or let them run their course, etc. And, and so we, we we have America is at drift. Now we're talking about 331 million people who have been looking at their television screens since January 1st and looking at about 341 mass murders. That is four more people killed by a single person. And so, you know, how, how do you tolerate this kind of thing? Um, well, I tell you what, with a great deal of effort, as a matter, you know, they've actually incorporated, you know, they, they factored into their lives that today there's going to be um, a mass murder in um, Buffalo or Washington or or, or in, in Highland Park, which is a little suburb, 25 miles <clears throat> north of Cook County or Chicago proper. And so, um, you know, they, they've kind of built this into their lives. And, uh, you know, and, and you can't make too much sense of things that don't make sense. But I say this all sheets back to uh, when uh, Charles Whitman walked up to the tower and started shooting people with a long-range rifle. And, uh, and it became normalized. You know, when, when things like this become normalized, um, you're in a really kind of a different world. I mean, uh, Americans, uh, uh, I like to point out in the media around the world, there are more gun dealers in America than there are McDonald's. There are 13,000 McDonald's and I think 43,000 gun dealers. There are more guns in America than Americans. And those are only the guns that are registered. So everybody's got a gun. And uh, nobody's going to give these guns up, by the way. Every time there's a mass murder, a mass killing, 
Americans don't decide to walk into the police station and hand in their guns. What they do is they buy more guns. <laughs> they, they keep uh, insulating themselves from, from, from these kinds of things. So anyway, my, my generation has had an incredibly uh, uh, interesting view, but the, the point is uh, uh, my, my age group um, have just have lived with war. You know, as I say, I was born in the, uh, uh, in the depth of the Second World War, and then we just lived through these other wars, and we lived through uh, nuclear weapons and all the rest of it, and uh, we've tried to provide the world with some leadership. I wish we'd stop providing too much leadership. I mean, I, I think the, the trick is, um, is can America stay home a little bit? And then we got all these other world, all, all these other small to middle powers, including Australia, who are trying to pick sides. You know, uh, Australia has always been tied up to a great and powerful friend, whether it was the Brits in the first instance until they were abandoned off the coast of Malaya in 1941, or, or the Americans later on. Today, uh, uh, Australia is sort of fishing around for some more protection. I mean, they're turning to the Japanese, of all people. Uh, they're turning to Quad, which, of course, is a waste of time. And I get a big kick out seeing Albanese queued up at the... Uh, at the NATO conference, uh, looking to see if he gets somebody interested in Australian security. Now, um, this is quite a stretch, by the way. You know, Australia is um, is looking for a little bit of help, and um, you know, the thing is that Australia has been fearful since 1950s of being a, a nuclear hostage. That is, because it's uh, an ally of the United States, it's a number one target and a hostage. And uh, I think. Uh, uh, Australians have worked out what the French worked out and everybody else worked out, and then Americans are not going to trade Chicago for Canberra. I don't, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Uh, the, the French worked that out and developed their own nuclear weapon, and the Brits always knew America were never going to trade London for Washington. Uh, so they, they developed their own nuclear weapons. So I don't know what the answer to that is, but the thing is that Australia is kind of looking around for help because it, it probably... Uh, uh, doesn't trust the American guarantee. You know, every time uh, Joe Biden opens his mouth, he talks about uh, defending every inch of Europe and defending his allies. I'm very suspicious of some people who have to remind you of what they're doing in the room each time they, they open their mouths. And the thing is this, Australia is, in, uh, is, is going to rough patch ahead. It's got to figure out how to survive in a world where the American guarantee means less and less. Now, in my lifetime, uh, we... we gave up on North Korea, and we gave up on South Vietnam, and we gave up on Laos, we gave up on Cambodia, we gave up on Taiwan, uh, we, we, we gave up on Afghanistan. You know, America could lose wars. Well, we didn't really lose a war, we just went home. You know, we, we had a stalemate in most of these places. Mm. And we, but, but smaller nations can't afford to lose a war because they disappear from the face of the earth. And so we uh, Australians are going to have to get very clever in this very dangerous and uncertain world to use John Kennedy's phrase. But the point is, I've seen all this violence, and I'm looking for sort of uh, uh, some light touches. That is, I mean, is, is there any hope here? Well, I, I think there is hope because, uh, you know, guys like you, different generation, are interested in uh, how we move forward, you know, without killing each other. And I think uh, one of the things we should realize, whether we're talking about radio or television or the Internet, is and uh, I don't believe human nature has changed in ten thousand years. Okay, people still want to, you know, see the flowers in the spring and they want to reproduce and all that kind of stuff. And I, I don't think much has changed. The, the the vehicle by which we know each other has changed. People have uh, 
less time to make decisions, at least in real time. But I think human nature is about the same. And um, I, I think the, the, this, the, the answer here is in, is in education, whether whatever level it is. I mean, when I started university, you know, the, the idea of having a university education was to make you a better citizen. I mean, today, politicians won't support an education unless there's a shovel-ready job for you at the end of graduation day. You know, today, we, we look at education as completely utilitarian. It has to have an instrument at the end of it. And, and um, uh, that this is a big mistake because I think education should be available to uh, uh, everybody, actually. In mm -hmm. fact, during the beginning of uh, uh, COVID, I suggested to people that we, we, uh, we turn Australian education into free education for five years so we can keep everything in place. And I wasn't very popular with the vice chancellors, of course, who had spent too much money on the wrong things. Just to jump in here, Joe, um, do you find that universities are more concerned with indoctrination these days than education? Oh, I, I think they're floundering a little bit. Uh, I, I think uh, universities have uh, have lapsed into uh, compliance. You know, they're, they're more interested in enforcing the rules of monopoly than playing the game itself. I mean, uh, when I started Australia, when I arrived in uh, on February 2nd, 1973, Australia had about 12 or 15 universities, all the rest were CAEs and institutes. And uh, they were grand places, you know, and all the vice chancellors were uh, leading scholars and uh, humanitarian types and et cetera, et cetera. And, and year-long courses, and it was, you know, it was kind of nice. And, um, and, and then later on, when uh, uh, well, we, we had these reforms in 1987, where we combined uh, the CAEs or the institutes with the universities. These, uh, I think they're Dawkins reforms. Uh, we, we were trying to create a binary uh, wage system. Not, not, we're not, we weren't trying to get a unitary system. We're trying to get, get rid of the binary in terms of uh, compensation. And so what happened is a lot of the institutes and CAEs, uh, you know, be, they became universities overnight. And so, so instead of doing what they were doing, that is producing teachers and nurses, uh, they decided to become universities and, and do worldwide research or world-class research. And so they kind of lost the mission a little bit. And, um, uh, and I, th I think we lost a lot of our top intellectuals when it got uh, watered down like that. And then uh, after a while, a lot of these universities, including the, the Sandstones, and I was at UQ for, for 20 years, they, um, they, they, uh, they farmed out hiring people. So when they were looking for vice chancellors or deans or whatever, they, they'd use a headhunter in London or Sydney or wherever, and they'd get someone from the corporate world to come in. And the corporate world figured, well, we can, you know, they, they were talented people. They didn't know anything about higher education or what it was all about. And so uh, we were getting, a, uh, universities were being led by people who were increasingly um, not university people. That is, they were corporate people. And so pretty soon uh, our students became what? Um, clients. And the people in the university, instead of becoming employees, they became stakeholders. They started using all that language. I, I knew we were in trouble in the early, <clears throat> early 90s <clears throat> when they started giving uh, deans bonuses. <laughs> what do you give anyone a bonus in a university <clears throat> unless you're whipping someone to death or making them work faster? I wrote a piece at the University of Queensland uh, towards the end of the 1990s called the death of the, the golden death of the golden age of uh, education and i talked about how it used to be and how we've now been replaced by uh, 
corporate types, God bless them. Uh, and I said that uh, uh, vice chancellors now remind me a lot of Kmart managers, with all apologies to Kmart. And so my vice chancellor didn't like that, so I moved on to my next university. He didn't like that at all, as a matter of fact. And so <laughs> that's what happened is, you know, we get this corporatization uh, of universities, and pretty soon we, we kind of lose the mission. Uh, the mission used to be is to uh, uh, create a citizenry that is intelligent and qualified. And today, uh, unless universities are uh, producing students who are uh, looking right at a job, they're not interested in supporting them. You know, a couple, I think it was uh, 18 months ago, uh, the government um, has now put a premium on studying humanities and social sciences is the way that, uh, for a law degree, as there were a law degree. So that's like saying to people, well, you can't study uh, Socrates or the Peloponnesian Wars or ancient Rome or anything because um, there's no job in the end of it. So we're going to make this very hard for you to do this. And so mm -hmm. what they're doing is they're making uh, what education, the fun of education, that is. And what, what I mean by fun is uh, developing critical minds. You know, unless you ask questions, what's the point of living, as Socrates says? You know, you have to ask questions. And when, and when you no longer ask questions, you're in a very different world. You're in a world of, about compliance and conformity and all the rest. And I noticed something else in 73 when I arrived here, and that is uh, Australian universities, I think they're splendid places, uh, most of them, um, they, they don't have any friends in high places. You know, the, the Liberal Party doesn't, the coalition or Liberal Party doesn't like higher education because there are a lot of ideas there you might have to do something with. And the Labor Party doesn't like higher education. That is, the industrial unions don't trust the intellectuals in the Labor Party. But that's what that fight's all about. And then the, the National Party uh, isn't much interested in higher education. So if higher ed fell over, as it has during COVID, where we've released and we fired over, about, I think, 20,000 casual uh, staff members, uh, there's no lamentation. No one cares. Uh, Australia, the Australian public um, is not geared to any sensitivity towards higher education. And um, it's becoming harder and harder job to, uh, to fulfill. And I think a lot of students entering higher education, they, 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 they go in and they think, you know, what can I, can I get a job out of this right away? Is there something waiting for me? So instead of uh, creating all these critical minds uh, who have something to contribute to governance. Uh, we're creating a lot of people who are looking for some instant feedback. Anyway, I noticed that in the 60s uh, or the early 70s when I got here that Australia had no friends in high places. So government vice chancellors had to fight for everything. And back then there were a lot of uh, very uh, classy vice chancellors. They were physicists and great thinkers and people like Zalman Cohen who were experts on law and privacy and all the rest of it. Um, today's vice chancellors are very competent corporate people, most of them. Some of them are returning to the academic mode, but um, uh, we, we've seen higher ed in this country as big business. And indeed it was, you know, with the Chinese students coming in, foreign students represented the third highest expenditure or the highest, third highest export in Australia. I mean, right behind iron and coking coal, we had, we had higher education. And, and, and no matter how bad or how good a university is or was, it had all this Chinese money to play with. And that's what they did. So they started paying uh, these people enormous salaries uh, because all this money was coming. And then when the money dried up, uh, people had to rethink about how we do business. So, so Joe, we've got some serious issues of the past, present and future, some of which you've touched on uh, in, in your introduction. And 
But it seems we've got. I think just we should we need to address an obstacle first because I've never heard you talk directly about this because it seems that today in the West, most of our time is spent either peddling or battling wokeness or whatever you want to call it. It's a, a virulent strain of sort of elite postmodern thought that seems to be obscuring uh, our view of more consequential events that are right in front of us. Because we want to talk about all those those things that you've been talking about, which is what where we've where we've come from, where we're going. But uh, what's we I need to get your perspective first, get this out of the way on on what we call or have been calling wokeness. There are rules of the game, whether you're playing baseball or cricket or gridiron or rugby, you know, there are rules. And the rules are either written or they're unwritten. Sometimes the rules are traditional. And in, in, and in the last 10, 15 years, we have a number of unwritten rules, that is where you're kind of nice to people, you should be nice to everybody because you're going to see them again, to where they're starting to be codified. They start to come up. You can't say this and you can't say that. And, um, uh, and what's really disturbed me is this cancel culture business person, man or woman's incredible lifetime can be wiped out because uh, one moment of stupidity, et cetera. And I think the wokeness has reached a level of um, uh, of concern in the sense that it's, I think it's the main game. You know, it is one of the rules. You know, you, I, I believe in the Ten Commandments and, and the Golden Rule. You know, if you treat everyone the way you'd like to be treated, uh, I think you avoid most of these problems. And, and so uh, when, when these things come to the fore, they take up a lot of oxygen, they take up a lot of time and money, and you're looking at the wrong thing. Let me give you an example. Uh, I was uh, on a committee, uh, a selection committee at one of these universities, and I've been at four of them now, uh, and we were looking at some candidates. There were two women, uh, very talented women. Um, one had no books and a lot of edu- a lot of experience. The other one was on the verge of a, a big book. She was from WA, the area. And the other guy, and the third candidate was a guy with three books with the same experience. So uh, I, I, I said, and of course, uh, universities have to have uh, an experienced panel plus an outsider, that is somebody from outside the, the school or the division to uh, put in their two cents. So we, we had a woman from the business school there who was sitting down and she, I said, I think all things being considered, we have to go with this fellow here because he's got two or three books plus all the same experience. And, and this, this woman says to me across the table, and there's six people in the room, and she says, um, I don't like him. And I said, well, why don't you like him? And she says, I don't trust men who write books. They're very selfish. <laughs> so I never a true word spoken. So, you know, I, I I've written fifty four books, about forty eight up till that time, and I thought, what what are we? You're a very exceptionally yeah, selfish yes, person. Yes, <laughs> and, 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 and I said, and I happen to know that this guy is you know, a father. You know, he's had a, a good career. He's he's a human being, and um, she says, surely he's written these uh, these two or three books on gendered time. Well, not only is he selfish, but he's obviously written anything on some, at someone else's expense. So, you know, when you start to get, so I, I said to her, as gently as I could in my Chicago fashion, I said, I want you to repeat that to me, and then I'm going to make sure you're fired on Monday morning, okay? I said, I'm going to pursue you to the gates. And so she withdrew her comments, and I thought, 
my God, she really let the cat out of the bag. You know, she, 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 she and, and you know, the, the, I don't mind what people think, but when they have enough balls to actually put it out there, like it's, uh, it's writ, you know, it's like we should all be uh, thinking about these things. I'm thinking, what, what, what planet is she on? And of course, what she's on is the planet where uh, she thinks everybody's on, you know, the, the wokeness planet. And I thought, what, what would even prompt her to say that? I mean, I don't care if she thinks that. You know, as far as I know, the guy could be a bum, you know, deep down. I don't know. We don't know their secret lives. But the point is that the fact that she could put that out there and, 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 and categorize uh, uh, somebody's work as um, unfit because he did it at someone else's expense and that he is by nature very selfish. I would have thought people who wrote books and articles and who played a part in the community were very valuable people. The idea that we've turned the world on its head, you know, what they're saying is, is that uh, if, a, if a person who writes books is selfish, then people who don't write books must be unselfish, which is stupid. I mean, because if you're not researching in the university, you don't belong there anyway. That's what they're supposed to be doing, as a matter of fact. And so uh, I, I've seen this uh, uh, operate right in front of me. And um, uh, in America, it's probably worse than other places. I mean, Australia is pretty good. You know, uh, one of the things I noticed you have here are good defamation laws. You know, in America, you can sue anybody for anything. And they do. Uh, here, because the burden of proof is a little higher, uh, it's harder to prove. And so people don't sue each other crazy. And of course, you don't have the big uh, uh, compensation payouts if you do sue somebody, you know. When I went to Las Vegas, there were, there were uh, well, just in America in general, there were billboards everywhere advertising sort of lawyers and, and, and basically giving you the excuses of how you should sue someone on the billboard. I'm, 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 I'm not surprised. When, when I was a kid, we call these people ambulance chasers. You know, yeah. <laughs> they used to follow the ambulance to the car, to the car crash, and uh, they'd be all over the place, and even that was a minor injury. Uh, they'd be trying to sue you for this thing and that thing and, and the like. So, you know, Americans are basically a very litigious people. Australians uh, have backed off from that kind of thing. But the, uh, the, the, what I, but, but your first question is about where, where, where does this stuff fit in? I, I think it's important to have uh, rules, uh, spoken and unspoken. You know, in baseball, if a guy's pitching a no-hitter in the ninth inning, you don't bunt the ball, try to get a cheap hit. You got to hit the ball. Everyone knows that, but it's not written down anywhere. In fact, your career would be over if you got a cheap hit, you got a cheap shot. I, I broke up a no-hitter, knowing that people would talk to you, as a matter of fact. There are rules, and the rules in the academic game is that uh, everybody should treat each other with a great deal of civility. When I became president of the Australian Council for Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences, first thing I did was have a conference in Canberra about the return to civility. I, I, this was about eight or nine years ago before we became really incivil to each other. Anyway, um, I, I had at, uh, at, my, at this one conference table, I was there in the middle and I had Gareth Evans on one side and John Howard on the other talking about Australian foreign policy. And I thought it was very civilized, you know, they, these guys are very partisan in their own way and they set everything aside at the door and, you know, cooperate. And I thought, this is what we got to do is we got to get people who normally don't talk to each other to sit down and have a conversation about how we move forward but that's all gone now i mean uh if i wanted well, to well we would say now that all of you people uh, who were at that table were cis het white men 
that and selfish so white men. That's the main thing we need to talk about. That's right. That, that's it. That's <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly. I guess. I guess so. That's that's how that would go. Um, now look in America, we've always tried to divide the cake according to ethnicity and race. Okay, and um, in the beginning, we have all these um, uh, these founding fathers, uh, half of whom were slaveholders, etc., and the other half uh, uh, who didn't. Uh, appreciate anybody who didn't own property and women didn't have the vote anyway. America's come a long way since the 1770s, I, I can tell you that. And, and so uh, the, the, the dinner table was opened up for women in, uh, around the First World War. And uh, blacks, of course, were uh, the recipients of the Civil War. And we had all these ethnic and racial ethnic groups come in. America was built on the backs of uh, one wave of immigrants after the other, who were treated very badly, by the way. I mean, the, the story of the newcomer in America is, is, a, is a pretty rough story. It's about one wave of immigrants come in looking for streets paved with gold, only to find out they're paving the streets themselves with bitumen. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a rough place. And, um, and, and in the 60s at universities, we started studying ethnicity and race at the same seminars because we looked at these, how these people were treated differently, et cetera, et cetera. But the newcomers have always been treated very, very rough. Uh, and then, of course, we have uh, the blacks and the browns, et cetera. Now, uh, you guys may not know this, but uh, in, in American cities, if you have, uh, well, uh, there are 14% of America, 12 to 14% of America is black, and uh, about, I think, 19% is Hispanic, et cetera, and the rest is white and whatever. Uh, we have these kind of... Uh, parceling out in the city council. If you got so many women or blacks or Poles or Lithuanians in Chicago, they serve on, on, on the city council. So there's that kind of, we try to divide the pie. Uh, you, the, the, the quintessential example of this is, is Joe Biden, who's trying to make uh, all these appointments based on race, color, and creed. You know, you see it, you know, and, and it's going well, it's going well. Yes, it's going well. And, uh, and the, the point is, is that, uh, uh, America's always tried to divide the pie. Uh, now, does the pie get any bigger? That's the trick, of course, is to make sure that the pie gets bigger. But um, uh, uh, Americans have always tried to incorporate the newcomers, et cetera. And uh, when, I, when I was in America, and I used to go back every year at, for long periods, um, uh, there are enormous gains. You know, I, I hear a lot of complaints about... Uh, uh, American blacks and Hispanics and Asians and when 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 I was a kid there were uh, no black professional football players uh, today and I'm a big fan of the Chicago Bears and the National Football League and uh, today uh, seventy percent of the uh, football players are African Americans and they're elite athletes they're the best of the best. Uh, in American basketball, when I was a kid, there were no blacks playing on professional teams. Today, there are eighty percent. And you know, in Supreme Court, same way, we got black judges and we got uh, black mayors. And you know, blacks have made these enormous gains. But if you watch some of these uh, television shows in America, you think that nothing's happened in the last fifty or sixty years. Enormous gains have taken place. Same thing for Italians and and and, and Jews and all these other ethnic groups who are struggling to who had to uh, try to try to come to the table as a matter of fact so um but anyway we we we, we have these these deep divisions which are um, fostered by um uh obvious things now for example uh, 
you know, these are visuals. The, the young man who just killed all those people in Highland Park, this little suburb north of Chicago, uh, he was taken into custody uh, with a rifle in his car, an automatic rifle. And he was brought into custody without firing a shot. And he got this guy, I think in Akron, Ohio, this guy who was running away and was shot 90 times, 60 of them hit his body. I mean, uh, you know, he shoots somebody 60 times after a traffic violation. I mean, what are we talking about here? You know, it just doesn't look right. It doesn't look right. And don't get me wrong, a lot of these police forces have a lot of uh, uh, blacks and browns and all kinds of people there. I mean, it's just the cops, you know. The cops have always been the, course, uh, the source of most of these riots, whether in the 1919 uh, race riots or whatever it is. It's the, it's the heavy-handedness because who are the cops? Oh, the cops are the last ethnic group that came in. They might be Irish or Poles or whatever it is. You know, they, These are the people who, who do these jobs that most Americans don't want to do. You know, Who wants to man the thin blue line? It's, it's not very glamorous, and it doesn't pay very much. Uh, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, we 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 have all these visuals that feed into this this kind of thing, and 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 so it looks like there's something wrong with this picture, and then we we, you know, we had this shooting in Buffalo where the guy shot 12 people, 10 of them were black and then two of them were white, so it was considered a race crime or a hate crime. You know I don't know how murdering people can be more of a hate crime than that. I mean every time you kill somebody uh it seems like a hate crime but you know they're, they're putting layers on it race crime uh, ethnicity you know anti-semitic crimes where it's a uh, shooting at a synagogue or whatever it is so now we're layering up you know we're we're we're, we're layering up what what the charges would be for capital for capital murder and so uh, we, we we're sort of a little confused with these these images and americans are sitting back and watching this and and, and i think the thing that strikes me about America, and I follow Pew Research very carefully. In the last 20 years, uh, Americans have just about given up on Congress. Only about um, 12 to 15 percent of Americans think that Congress will do the right thing. They don't have any faith in Congress anymore. That's what made Donald Trump possible. You know, Donald Trump didn't have a following. The, they found him. You know, he he looked at the guy you can send to Washington, and then he'd give Washington what the bird. That's why they sent him there. They sent him there to drive him crazy, and he did. He did drive him crazy. You know, they sent Still a television. <laughs> yeah, they, they sent a they sent a guy who was host of a, a television show for twelve or fourteen years to to Washington D.C. I mean, uh, being president of the United States is a very difficult job. It would burn out anybody at the end of forty eight years, and they, they sent a guy for whom every night was amateur hour. <laughs> he didn't know what he was doing. It's like making Peter Sellers the prime minister of, of Britain. You know, it was, mm. it'd be a great comedy uh, if it weren't so sad. So, so he's not Hitler then? No, he's not Hitler. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Hitler looks like a genius next to this guy. No, uh, uh, I, I just think that um, uh, guys like Trump, they just made it up as they went along. He, he didn't know what he was doing. And then when all those uh, uh, born-again ministers went in there and uh, and put their hands on his back and anointed him as the one. I'm thinking, my God, you know, this is just bad television. <laughs> He's the one. The one what? I mean, he is the one guy you don't want to be having dinner with because you're going to get stuck with the bill. That's the guy you don't you don't want this guy around. Anyway, um, we 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 put some very strange people, and and 
this is, I think the second thing is, I talked about the violence. Woody Allen had a movie about 25 years ago called Celebrity. And he predicted in that movie that everything will be celebrity after a while, whether it's politics or whatever it is. You can't go anywhere and do anything without celebrity. Look at the influencers and, and people like that. I mean, even Zelensky has become a, a bit of a social media star. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Zelensky is, to me, he's a phenomenon, you know. He, he went from being Jerry Seinfeld of, of Ukraine. Imagine Seinfeld as president of the United States, you know, George. But, but, and, and, but also becoming a little bit of a Churchill figure. here. And yes, uh, a little bit of a Churchill figure. I, I, I look at Zelensky, whose, whose career would have been over by now if he'd just been a politician in a normal setting. Um, and what amazes me are all these really intelligent politicians around the world who are risking their lives to get a selfie of themselves with Zelensky in Kiev. I mean... Uh, Albo. Didn't Albo go? Yeah, I, 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 I can't, can't understand what Australia is doing in Kiev. You know, support them, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you know, what, what, I always thought Australia put all of its chips in, in the United Nations. <laughs> it winds up as a... As you know, Australia is a, not just a friend of NATO. It is a, um, it's kind of like a member. You know, it's got some member status, as a matter of fact, which means it'll get you shot at or killed, but none of the benefits of being protected. And so these people who have to show up in Kiev, now, I I, I think that between the violence and the celebrity, uh, we, we're looking at some a very strange phenomenon. I once asked a, a very uh, good friend of mine from the University of Chicago guy named Arthur Mann. I said, when did America turn right? You know, because when I was a kid, there wasn't a conservative in sight. We were all liberals, or better yet, we were just firebrands. And then uh, America sort of uh, moved to the right of center. He said, uh, he was a big cinema fan, he said, you can plot America's move to the right with, uh, with the Dirty Harry movies. When he says that, when he, when he, when he says, uh, Harry says, says to the guy, he says, is this your lucky day? And he's going to put a bullet in his head. And, um, and, and, and Arthur said, when Americans can tolerate that, that kind of shite, you know, you're in trouble, you know, because it started to look normal uh, to mm -hmm. put people down like this. So he said, America turned rightward. And of course, every time you have a movement in America, you have a counter movement. You know, or the right does spring from the left. And and when I was uh, in university, I, I, I there was a guy, and we didn't pay any attention to him. Uh, his, his name was uh, Ed Fulner. And uh, uh, while everybody was very liberal and burning down institutions and fighting a war and injustice and all that, uh, Ed went to see Joe Coors, the guy from the Coors Beer Fortune, and wanted some money to start an institute to look at some conservative causes. And that, that and that institute became the Heritage Foundation. You know, Ed Fulmer got I got twenty million out of Joe Coors. We're all running around trying to change the world, and he's um he, he gets twenty million, and he becomes you know the Heritage Foundation then becomes kind of the, the fountainhead of uh, conservative reform in the United States. And of course, it's a complete misunderstanding of conservatism. Conservatism can be very radical, as uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson says. You know, conservatism based on uh, tradition can change the world as opposed to radical things or burning things down. And so uh, while the world was very liberal, America's very liberal, it then became very um, con conservative. And that was, you know, and we always have these 
these shifts. The reason I, I always like to think I can get into Joe Biden's head, and I just wrote an essay, which I'll send you guys. Uh, I, I, I wrote it yesterday, which was published on Sky about uh, uh, how he's left his successor with the war in Ukraine. And, uh, you know, he's caught between no man's land. He, you know, he wants to su support uh, Ukrainians, but he doesn't want to go to war with, with Putin because he knows too much about nuclear weapons, as a matter of fact. And my, my point is this, is that uh, I am uh, the same age as Biden. I've seen everything that he has seen. I've lived through the very things that he's lived through. And so I understand what he's trying to do. He's trying to, uh, he's trying to do the right thing. At the same time, he's got the left at his, his ankles butting at him. And he's got the, the right wing of the Democratic Party who want to continue to move forward that is doing, they want to control the power. So the Democrats... These the war hawks? Well, um, interestingly, um, we have in both parties, we have war parties. Uh, we have a number of Washingtonians, there's a number of people in Washington, uh, who can't wait to go to war with China or Russia. I mean, they, uh, they're part of the, the military-industrial complex, that is, they feed the system. And uh, when I see good Democrats and good Republicans, and that's the only thing they can agree on, is that there, there is a war coming with China. That's the only thing they can agree on. Now they can agree uh, that there might be even a war with, uh, with Putin, as a matter of fact. So, uh, yeah, we have, we have these Sorry to parts. jump in here, Joe. Do you think war with, with China is, is inevitable? Uh, yeah, I think some kind of conflict with China is inevitable over the South China Sea. Not over Taiwan. Taiwan uh, was, uh, was settled uh, by uh, Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger with Mao and Zhou Enlai and... February 1972. They, they took it off the table. Americans agreed at that time that uh, uh, that uh, uh, there was only one China and Taiwan was part of China. And as long as the Taiwanese didn't declare independence and the Chinese didn't uh, beat them up, that uh, we wouldn't do a damn thing about it. And we didn't do a thing about it. By 1979, we then uh, cut ourselves loose from the minister from the defense arrangement with uh, with Taiwan and. Uh, and of course, Taiwan prosperity to this day is is on the basis of being left alone by the mainland. You know, and the two forms of government, the Chinese government has said to Taiwanese, you can have your own army, navy, you can have your medals, you can have your holidays, uh, you can have your own system of government, you can have your own form of capitalism, but you can't declare independence. That's the rule. That's the rule. And I, I believe in, uh, uh, in large powers and small powers. I believe in the laws of propinquity, that is, uh, Taiwan is a uh, Chinese issue, and we recognize it as such. That is one for them. You know, the, the, we, we, we cannot be concerned about going to war with, with uh, China over Taiwan for two reasons. Number one, historically, it's their territory. And number two is we'd lose the war. Every American ship in the Taiwan Strait would be sunk by the support units in, on the mainland. We can't supply those F-35s from that distance. And the war would escalate very quickly. I mean, it's one of these things that was taken off the table. And when I saw these debates in this country about picking a fight with China, I'm thinking, not only is it wrong, but it's stupid. We've already settled this issue. And, and, and then I found out uh, that, um, I mean, if you look at the Shanghai communique and the the few papers that have been, a few memoranda have been released since then, it's quite clear that China's off, the, uh, Taiwan's off the table. Uh, but 
you can't really study that in Australian universities because Australian universities don't study history as much as they used to, and they don't study Chinese history as much as they used to, or even Soviet history as much as they should. And so um, uh, we, we get a lot of politicians and surrounded by a lot of staffers who don't know anything about anything. So what they say is they say, well, the Chinese, uh, uh, we, we should defend the independence of, of Taiwan. Well, actually, we shouldn't defend the independence. When I was a student in, uh, I, I, I grew up in Chicago, went out west to Colorado, and then I went to Vienna for a couple of years. And I noticed that in 1955, Austria, uh, which is an independent state, uh, is neutral between east and west. That's the only way to survive. So if you live on the borderlands or you fall within the, uh, the pool of the movement, or the pool of uh, uh, the jurisdiction, you know, you got to play by those rules or you don't survive, as a matter of fact. So I don't think China should be off the table in this country. And when the Morrison government was picking a fight with these guys, I was thinking, what are they doing? You know, because I know this, that America is never going to war with China over Taiwan. You know, they can say all they want in Washington, but in the heartland of the United States, in Peoria, Illinois, no one's going to trade Chicago for uh, Taipei or any of these other places. They're just not going to do that. In fact, if Australia... If America supports Australia at the end of the day as a guarantor, that'll, that'll be lucky for Australia. But they're not, they're not going to war. And they're not going to go to war over Ukraine. You know, it, it, to me, uh, supporting Ukraine uh, to the last man is, uh, is immoral. You know, we should have cut this deal with Putin. I mean, uh, Biden should have got on the horn and said, look, NATO's not going into, into Ukraine, and there'll be no advanced weapons systems on their border, which is only, what, 300 miles to Moscow anyway, while I'm president of the United States, and that would have been the end of it. And all we got were these stories about uh, Ukraine can choose its own way. And, uh, and, then, and then Albanese goes to NATO, and he says to these guys in NATO, well, you know, I, we noticed that there is a connection between that the, the, the Chinese are watching what's happening in Ukraine to, to try to gauge their response if they move into Taiwan. Nothing, nothing supports this judgment. This is stupid. And the people in Intel who provided them with that, you know, should be taken behind the woodshed and, 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 and flogged. I mean, this is crazy stuff. The idea that the Chinese give a damn about what's happening in Ukraine. I mean, anyone who knows anything about Sino-Russian Sino relations realizes these people were in each other's throats in the 1960s. They have about a 3,000-mile border together, which makes them enemies anyway, and that they're not on the same page. You know, the, 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 the Chinese, they want to play technology, economy. They want to play the game, okay? Uh, the, the Russians decided to break up uh, Ukraine. You know, uh, President uh, Putin, he doesn't want to uh, incorporate the all of Ukraine. He wanted to punish them for moving in a different direction. And, and Zelensky knew that. And when Zelensky, um, and I was the first guy in Australia, by the way, to predict that um, Putin was- This is on YouTube. You, 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 there's evidence on YouTube to support that you were early in well, calling uh, yeah, this. Yeah, I, I, I did it on with Pete uh, uh, Stepanovich on the Sky News at 6, 10 a.m. Uh, about uh, a week before the invasion. Uh, I said, uh, as soon as he goes to Beijing, he's just going to tell. He didn't want to screw up the Olympics, okay? <laughs> That's how these guys work. And and he wasn't coordinating policy with Beijing. He was just telling the guy that he, he he's not going to do anything for a while. And I predicted that he would move because it's quite simple. He's got 200,000 troops on the border waiting to move. 
And how long can you keep 200,000 uh, men in readiness before they, they're not ready anymore? He, he knew that there was, uh, there is a, in, in military preparations, a condition where things, uh, events overtake you and you have to move. You know, it's like uh, Operation Desert Storm. You know, you can't keep 200,000 people in the desert without moving them after a while. So I predicted there would be movement there. I also predicted that uh, he had no intention of taking over Ukraine. What he wanted to do was punish them. And, and you know, these crazy stories about denazification, demilitarization, that was his idea of saying, look, I'm, I'm coming through the door. And uh, he knew we wouldn't do anything about it. And this idea that um, uh, Zelensky, when, when the Russians invaded, Zelensky's policies failed. That's when he should have resigned and turned it over to somebody else because this is the thing. His, his policy failed, that is, he tried to bluff Russia. And then he asked every Ukrainian to die in the streets because his policy was a failure. See, this doesn't make any sense to me. And now we're bankrolling Ukraine in a proxy war and we're telling everybody the Russians want to invade NATO countries. The Russians aren't interested in NATO countries. All they're interested in is Ukraine right now. You know, they, they don't want to pick a fight with 32 nations. And so we, 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 we're using Ukraine as a, uh, as a battering ram against the Russians uh, with this, uh, this phony story about they're, they're on the verge of invading uh, NATO territory. And then, of course, um, President Biden says exactly what NATO says. And when, when Biden talks about defending every inch, he, he's reading PowerPoints from uh, Brussels. Those are all PowerPoints, you know, the rules-based order and this kind of crazy stuff. Anyway, uh, where, 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 Joe, Joe, just sorry, just to jump in here. Do you think the Donald would would be able to make a deal? Uh, no, I don't think one president's any different than the other. I mean, I, I think um, Biden could have made the deal if he wanted to, but he's surrounded by all these people who are trying to uh, uh, win win their spurs with some kind of uh, uh, war or preparation for war staring down the Russians and so uh, the uh, Biden is surrounded by people who bring out who, who talk about human rights first and then geopolitics second okay when I'm dealing with the Russians I'm dealing with geopolitics now look I, 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 I know a lot about Russian foreign policy and how these guys move but nothing is clearer than President uh, Barack Obama's observation in 2014 when these guys moved into Crimea, that he said that nuclear powers don't bluff, okay? Now, if you get someone like uh, Saddam Hussein or Colonel Gaddafi or others threatening, then you know you think about it, you give it, a, look at it with a grain of salt. But when a, a man with 6,000 nuclear weapons and thousands of tactical nuclear weapons says he's gonna do something, I think you should listen very carefully to what he's saying. You put him at the table, and you listen, and then you counter, you, you propose. And what, what Biden should have done was offered the neutralization of Ukraine. And people would say to me, oh, well, you know, they have a right to choose. No, they don't have a right to choose. They don't have a right, because their neighbor happens to be this former behemoth called USSR. And we know people forget, that people think these Ukrainians uh, have come off the dark side of the moon. My God, uh, uh, Leonid Brezhnev was Ukrainian. Uh, uh, 
Nikita Khrushchev made his career in, in Ukraine. They, they produced uh, great scientists who produced these nuclear weapons. I mean, these guys were part and parcel of the Soviet Union. They know how these guys work, as a matter of fact. But the point is to imagine that these are freedom fighters uh, somewhere in the world. Uh, that, 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 that's, they're, they're fighting about a border and they're fighting about their former status in the Soviet Union. In other words, I, I think the president of the United States had an opportunity to uh, nip this in the bud by assuring Putin that on his watch, there'd be no NATO uh, in, in Ukraine and that there'd be no advanced weapon systems on their borders. The same things that Nikita Khrushchev had to promise John Kennedy in 1962 because Kennedy threatened to reduce the world to nuclear ash, okay? You know, we, we, we did the same thing. And so uh, Putin is worried about the nuclear balance of power. And what do we do? We send out Secretary of State Blinken and Wendy Sherman and people talking about human rights and, and uh, it is the right to uh, Ukraine to, uh, to choose its foreign policy and choose its friends. Well, actually, when you, your next door neighbor is an is a, you know, 800-pound gorilla, you've got to think very carefully about who your friends are. And so what the Soviets wanted, or what the Russians wanted, is they wanted a foreign policy uh, that was conducive to their borderlands, okay? So people in their borderlands. Now, I, I said during the entire beginning of that war that if the Russians had, uh, had hundreds of thousands of troops at the Canadian or the Mexican border across from El Paso or across Niagara Falls, America would be at war Monday morning. You, you know, you just you couldn't have those. Those kinds of people. I mean, and, and same thing with the, uh, um, with the, uh, with the, with the Russians. You know, this idea that uh, Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, says this is not a military alliance. This is a defensive alliance. Well, every alliance in the world is a military alliance, and of course, Stoltenberg is only interested in people who can contribute. And he's always interested in skin in the game. You know, who's got what to give? As a matter of fact, and and so, you know, America is being driven along by these NATO policies. Now, a lot of smart people, George Kennan and the and the head of the uh, 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 the head of the uh, American ambassador to Russia today, and others argued in 1991 that NATO had a very limited role. It did its job, and that um, after 1991 it should have disbanded. And so, after 1991, um, people started to use it like frequent fire points, you know. And, People can join. And you can, if you belong to the European Union, you might as well belong to the uh, uh, to, to NATO. And, and for them, NATO wasn't an alliance; it was an insurance policy. People figured, well, if I sign up to NATO, I got I got a double policy here. No one's going to invade me, as a matter of fact. Uh, and, and so, um, people started signing up for the wrong reasons, and the Russians started getting very nervous. And I know that um, um, that Gorbachev and others were promised that there'd be. Um, and no, no further movement beside West Germany joining NATO or Germany after the, the end of the Cold War. And so the Russians reckon they got, uh, they got screwed. And of course, the Americans are stupid. They knew that the Russians might try to claw back some of their, uh, their kingdom after the Cold War was over. And that's why we had mutual assured destruction became mutual assured security. You know, there was always going to be enough nuclear weapons to, to deal with the Russians. In other words, this thing, you could see it coming a mile, miles away. And so NATO became something else. And, 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 you know, and NATO, of course, by the 1990s, you know, it's running around Europe looking for some mission to do. So it got involved in Kosovo and other places later. And of course, by, by now, NATO's just not an idea. It's a building. It's got uniformed people. It's got 
medical coverage and pensions. You know, it's a business. NATO is a business, and the business is staying in business, whatever the mission is. And so this uh, Putin comes along, and he threatens Ukraine. Well, they're, now they're really in business. You know, they had something to do in Afghanistan and other places. Now they got a real mission, and they keep licking their lips. And they keep talking about protecting territory, which Putin has no intention of invading. Okay, this is this is his fight on his borderland with a former member of the USSR, and so we all start to imagine that the Russians are on the move. Nothing could be further from the truth. And keep this in mind too: the 27 members of the European Union, who are all members of the of NATO are 449 million Europeans against 149 million Russians. Now, aside, take out, you factor out the, the nuclear business, America is supposed to get, has people covered there. You're telling me that 449 million Europeans can't stare down 149 million Russians in the area of conventional weapons? And of course, the Europeans are so hooked on American support that they think they can't do anything with Washington. And Washington is so hooked on the idea that NATO can't do anything without them that, that Biden's pretending to call the shots when, in fact, NATO's calling the shots. And this is exactly what uh, American politicians argued about in the 1960s. Senator Hatfield, Senator Mansfield argued that uh, NATO is leading America in a different direction because America is getting now trapped in entanglement alliances in European wars that it should avoid, as a matter of fact. And what drove a lot of Americans crazy in the 60s were two things. That while Americans were, uh, uh, you know, suffering to send their children to university, you know, to pay tuition, Europeans were sending their children to universities for free. And so Americans figured, well, you know, what are they, free riding? On NATO, and of course they were free riding. And the second thing is, I get a kick out of this unity crap. During, when the Vietnam War started, it was very serious. You know, it was a war against uh, uh, communism. When America put out the call for allies in, in Vietnam, not one, not one single European ally came to America's aid. Okay, you know, little Australia, Thailand, South Korea. We kicked in a few troops kicked in a few trips, but not one European power got involved in a war that America, that, John, that Lyndon Johnson regarded as, as, as the red line in American life. And, and those Americans never forgot that the Europeans turned their back on that. So this idea of this, this unity that's going to last forever, that's, that's an illusion. I don't know who's coming up with this. Well, but, John, uh, Joe, if you, if you were to get your crystal ball out, how does it end in Ukraine? What, what do you think happens in the end? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to have a negotiated settlement. You know, we're going to have uh, what we always have is uh, the war of attrition will just become a war of a, a, a ceasefire of exhaustion. And at the end of the day, um, Ukrainians are going to have to settle for semi-independent Donbass area, which was, uh, has a lot of Russian speakers anyway. And it's going to have to live without Crimea, which is uh, part of the Russian Empire for a hundred years, any, a couple of hundred years anyway. And it's going to have to uh, uh, disavow its interest in NATO. And, of course, NATO isn't going to have these people anyway because it would take them 20 years to get their ducks in a row before they can be fit to, to join NATO. So at, at the end of the day, we're going to have this uh, ceasefire of exhaustion, and we're going to have everything that the, uh, that the Russians wanted that they could have had on day one. And uh, Ukraine, of course, will be... Uh, will be destroyed. I mean, uh, Zelensky, uh, 
said that the the uh, rebuilding Ukraine will be the generational uh, task uh, for for you know the next uh, two generations. Well, uh, I I don't know. I can't imagine uh, various societies ponying up that kind of money to rebuild Ukraine when uh, Americans got homelessness and all kinds of problems in Australia the same way. And of course, we've all forgotten climate change, whatever that was, and it's all in the background. And so uh, I think we're going to have this kind of uh, uh, ceasefire, and then there's going to have to be a guarantee that it remains a ceasefire. Uh, but I think America will uh, learn a little lesson here, and that is uh, asking the Ukrainians to carry the load here. You know, that's what they're doing. Is they're, they're loading them up to kill themselves. And if you look at these, these Ukrainian cities, they're leveled. There's nothing there. And that's the Russian way. They like to bomb a place with artillery, and then they go in on the rubble, and, and declare the victory. And, and, and so I, I think uh, Ukrainians uh, probably fought a war they didn't have to. America uh, lacked leadership, which it should have offered, as a matter of fact. And I think NATO's pulling America in a different direction. And I think Australia is caught between uh, what's going on in the world and what it ought to do. Now, what it ought to do is, and this is, this is and I've heard this from your ambassadors over the last 50 years, is that anytime there is a major decision in Australia, whether it's AUKUS or buy nuclear submarines, or whether it's to get into Vietnam or shit even get in the Second World War, there's no discussion among the Australian people. There is no discussion in Parliament as there would be in Congress. There's no debate. There's no public policy debate. There is a decision made by the Prime Minister together with his National Security Inner Council to get Australia involved. I saw the paperwork at the Johnson Library where Robert Menzies says to a stenographer that his decision to get involved in Vietnam took him five minutes. And so, you know, Australian people woke up one morning and found out they were in Vietnam or they were in Afghanistan or they were here or there or wherever. In other words, uh, there's no discussion in this country. Australians are, 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 are easily led by their leaders. And that's fine if their leaders are informed or enlightened. And I don't see a lot of enlightened leadership here as a matter of fact. So um, uh, I think Australia has some very hard choices to make in the future. I mean, how does Australia uh, secure itself in a, in, a, in a dangerous and uncertain world that becomes more dangerous and uncertain? And I've been arguing in different circles, argued this in Washington too, that uh, Australia's um, geography tells you what you have to do. You know, Australia is an island continent. It has uh, 12,500 miles of coastline, uh, maybe about 30 surface ships, half a dozen submarines that work at one time, and few, fewer uh, armed force people than there are cops in New York. So how do you defend this place? Well, with a great deal of imagination, as a matter of fact. Now, when, when I was going to Australia, uh, I tried to find some books in 19, late 72 before I came in, early 73. And Australia was always in these books on small powers. And when I, I got to Australia, after a couple of years, Gough Whitlam gave a talk at uh, University of Queensland in the Story Hall, where he referred to Australia as a middle power. Now, so Australia got a promotion. It went from small power to middle power. I mean, don't pick a fight with Norway or anybody. You know, you might be in real, real trouble with those people. We could people. take them, I reckon. Yeah, we, we could take them, yes. <laughs> and and <laughs> so, so Australia is a middle power, and now it's moving with the big boys. And, and of course, what Australia's done in the last 20 years, it's become... Uh, part of the American Armed Forces. It, it's integrated, it's embedded in the in the Seventh Fleet. Uh, and, and there's this little expression that goes on that no one has studied. 
they talk about interoperability. You know, everything Australia does is interoperable, not only with Americans, but with NATO. So, you know, everyone's interoperable. What does this mean? Well, that means that everybody's in each other's pocket and they're using the same bullets and the same, the same this and the same that and the same air force and the same kinds of planes, the same air defenses, etc. So while, while Australians have been uh, uh, focused on one thing, the, uh, the governments of the day, and I don't care whether it's labor or liberal or vegetarians, they're, they're all on board with interoperability. I mean, as soon as uh, uh, Gough Whitlam persuaded Australians that there was utility to the ANZUS uh, alliance, then labor was on board. Labor was always about the United Nations uh, and not, not just about the alliance. But today it's about the alliance is everything. So Australia has, uh, has invested itself 100% in American guarantees. Well, these would be the same guarantees that the South Vietnamese had, same guarantees the Taiwanese had, the Iranians, the Iraqis, and the Afghans. Mm, I don't know. I don't think I trust this guarantee very much. So I'd be looking for an underwriter. And that's what Albanese was doing in Europe. He was looking for somebody to underwrite the American guarantee. He wants, he wants another opportunity. And so you see in a lot of these TV shows, uh, people who don't know what they're talking about, talking about Australia signing as many treaties and uh, uh, as possible to protect itself. Well, a treaty is only a snapshot on a certain day. And the treaty only has the currency if there's will, the political will to enforce it. And so, you know, you're, you're really rolling the dice. And I think Australia has a very difficult time ahead. Um, you know, it, it's an ally of the United States. It's uh, Now it's kind of a an ally of NATO as well. And it's starting to imagine what happens in Ukraine is going to affect uh, the president of China, the Chinese, and, and that Australia is going to be self at war. Well, we're not going to win any war with Taiwan. We're going to lose that one right away. And, and so uh, Australia is going to have to just uh, think very cleverly about how to prepare the road forward because the, uh, the American alliance isn't always going to be there. Keep in mind, between 1800 and 1949, the United States did not sign one peacetime military alliance. And that is because they knew from the 1770s and 1780s that peacetime alliances can get you into all kinds of entanglements that you don't want to get into. You know, as, 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 as members of a, of a nation, we want to be involved in the world, but we don't want to be involved to the point where we have no control. This is the... the the inherent tension, whether it's Australia, America, or anybody else, is how do you get involved in the world without being dragged into someone's civil war? So when leaders of uh, NATO or Australia stand up and said, you know, we're with the Ukrainians till the crack of doom. Well, good luck with that. That's not going to work, as a matter of fact. And you'll be eating those words. Anyway, we, we can't afford that. Nobody can afford that, as a matter of fact. So we have to decide very carefully about what we're going to do. And Australia, I think, is in a very unique position uh, to um, to play a, a major role in the United Nations. I wish it would kind of return the United Nations role. Yeah. And I think Australia has a great role to play in terms of uh, diplomacy. And in the 1950s, Americans, and particularly in the Eisenhower administration, used to admire the, uh, the Australian ability to explain to America what was going on in Southeast Asia. I mean, uh, the... Uh, the Eisenhower administration always regarded Australians, Australians as the interlocutors to explain to Americans what the hell's going on in this neck of the woods. And so Australia has an important role to act as a um, um, sort of an intermediary between 
China and the United States or between, you know, Southeast Asia and the rest of it. And uh, I think Australia has a wonderful role to play there, but it's forgotten that it played a role there and it may not realize that it's, it has a role to play there, particularly if the military is already meshed, okay? It's already meshed in. So what's the point of being an interlocutor? And so I think Australia's are going to have to just back up a little bit and rethink these guarantees because uh, they're not really guarantees. They're promises that may or may not be kept one day, in which case Australia's going to have to make some very hard decisions. And if Australia gets in a war where it loses battleships, or the American Navy starts to go down the Taiwan Strait, it will be sunk there. Then Australia is going to have to make some very hard decisions in a very short period of time. And let me tell you, the next government that comes in, the government that endorses stupidity, is going to be faced by an electorate that's going to elect another gov government to sign any surrender document, and it has to, to stop the bloodletting, okay? I mean, they've they got to think about this now rather than later. So Australia is going to have to be very clever about, I think, how it moves forward. But look, Australia has a, a, a very important future, a glorious future. The only thing is, is that it's going to have to think very hard about how to survive. There's nothing natural about Australia. You know, it, it was only founded, why? Because the Brits couldn't dump their Irishmen anymore in the new world. So they found another new world and they called it Australia. And Australia happens to be on the doorstep of a very strange world, which Australia has no control over. In fact, Australia doesn't know what to do with its neighbors, whether they regard them as enemies or, or friends. You know, this is the, the great legacy of Paul Keating. Keating says they're our friends. Other people say, oh, you know. He's still saying it. He is. He's yeah. still saying it, yeah. And, and, you know, otherwise, uh, there's always a threat from the North, whatever the North was. You know, a lot of the kids in university today don't remember that uh, in, in the 1960s when Australia wanted a, a nuclear weapon, they wanted tactical nuclear weapons from the Brits. Why? Because the great fear in those days of a, was of communist Indonesia. And before that, it was uh, Imperial Japan, which was real, as a, as a matter of fact. And then the, the fear now, of course, is, is China. I mean, China's not interested in sending warships through the hit, Sydney head, okay? They're not interested in that. What they're interested in is playing the game. You know, they like to play the globalization game. They like to play the Belt and Road, which looks a lot like uh, American dollar diplomacy or British gunboat diplomacy. They, they want to compete in the, the Olympics of technology and and, and computer chips, and they, they, they want to play the game, you know, and that's why they're not really good friends with Putin. Putin wants to wreck the game. <laughs> they don't want to wreck the game. They want to play the game because they think they can win it, and they, they just might win it. But look, Australia's going to have to figure out how, how to do that, and it all begins with uh, training a, a new generation of Australians to think strategically. If you go to Amer Australian universities today, you got a lot of courses that are looking in the wrong direction. They're not training young minds, men and women, to think strategically about the grand strategy for Australia. Well, they're thinking strategically about um, gender gender studies and how how best to navigate um, gendered time and uh, you know all the issues we spoke about at the beginning. They're not talking. They're not thinking about the stuff they should be thinking. Yeah, about. I was trying to be diplomatic here. I said they're looking in the wrong direction. <laughs> They're looking, they're looking down below is where they're looking. Yeah, they're, they're, they're looking, they're looking in, the, in the wrong direction. And, and what you got to do is train a lot of, and, and a lot of, you know, I, I've had, uh, uh, I've had about, uh, oh, about 50 PhD students and 75% of them are women and they're great thinkers and they wind up as ambassadors and other kinds of things. And, and, and we got all these intelligent people 
who can, who can see a way forward for Australia. Uh, but it, but you have to be able to interpret the world around you, and and you have to look outside of uh, gendered time. You got to look outside of all that. And, and, what, and what you have to do is you have to look at geopolitics. You have to look at history. You have to look at human nature. And you know whether you're studying Socrates or or you're studying uh, the, the Enlightenment, whatever it is, we have to create these. Uh, uh, these critical minds to, to look at the world and ask these important questions is uh, what is the world going to look like and what's Australia's place in it? And we don't do much of that anymore uh, we, because Australian universities are doing other things. Now, some there are pockets of it and, um, uh, in different places where they're looking at national security and, and these kinds of things. But uh, I, I think it's important that uh, Australian students understand a little bit about the 20th century uh, which tells you everything you need to know about the 21st century. I mean, how can you understand the 20th century without understanding Australian participation in the in the First World War or the history? You know, the last time we tried to make a pariah state out of somebody that is Imperial Germany, we we got the Nazis 20 years later, and then when we turned the Bolsheviks into a pariah state, who did we get? We got the Red Army 20 years later. You know, we're pretty stupid about history because we don't know any. But when you don't even teach history, you don't even give people a chance. So I think it's it's important for people to understand that we, we have to go back to basics. We have to look at history and we have to be able to apply history to the problems today. Now, Australians, like a lot of other people <clears throat> since 9-11, since they have been ahistorical. That is, they have imagined that the, the, the world started on 9-11. They've been looking at the world that way. But the world started well before that, as a matter of fact, in the 20th century the nuclear age and things like that. So we're going to have to produce people who, who look at history, who look at human nature, who look at ethics, who, who look at uh, anthropology and sociology. And how, how do people, what do people see together and how, what kinds of decisions do they make? And then uh, we, we, we have to encourage Australia's best people to become politicians. You know, in America, the, the best people try to go forward. I mean, they don't pretty hard to get past establishment. But I, I have been astounded in my nearly 50 years in this country. I don't see the best and the brightest looking for political careers. They, they, they stay away from it. They want to go into law or medicine or whatever it is. And so, you know, who do we get as prime ministers and premiers? We get the president of the Liberal Party or the president of the Labor Party on campus somewhere. We get, we get uh, someone retiring after 20 years in office replaced by the electoral secretary. What's that all about? I don't even get that. You know, I, I, don't, I don't get that at all. So we're not, we're not attracting the best people. And then, of course, um, we've got some good people in the public service who may work on the fringes of intelligence, but they tend to be overwhelmed by the uh, bureaucracy at the top. And Australians like to speak groupthink. That is, everybody at the top wants to imagine they're on the same page. So they all tend to conform to the same language, same threat perceptions, and they all see the same things. And if anybody sees a Chinese coming over the hill because they're cutting a deal in the Solomon Islands, they really ought to go fishing for a while or have a little think about this. You know, the, the Chinese are doing exactly what everybody's been doing uh, since they invented boats, is they're trying to influence uh, their neighbors. This is what great powers do. We learned this from... Uh, uh, from the German uh, scholars and philosophers in the 19th century. Great powers try to influence their neighbors. They don't want to capture them, not like the Roman Empire, but they, they want to influence them and make sure at least they are benign neighbors, as a matter of fact. So what the Chinese are doing is what everybody else has done. 
who's had a, had a navy and who's able to project power. But the Chinese have not, uh, uh, they have not bogged, got bogged down in Vietnam or Afghanistan. And they're not stupid like that. You know, they, they do other kinds of stupid things, but that's not one of them. We get bogged down. And my great concern is that in uh, the last 78 years, we haven't won a war. You know, we, we haven't, we, we haven't disgorged the North Korean Communist Party from North Korea. We failed badly in Vietnam. We walked away, as a matter of fact, left millions, tens of millions of people to their fates. And, and I'll tell you what, what really got me the other day was when we left Afghanistan. Now, we left Afghanistan like there was a fire in a, in a circus tent, okay? We left very badly. But it was rushed. The thing is, when we left Afghanistan, we left 20 million women and girls in the Stone Ages. We sent them back to the seventh century. Hmm. This is after setting up courses on gender, producing judges and police and all kinds of people. Women had joined Afghan life. And, and, and then we, we talk about uh, human rights in the world, and we got all these bloody crocodile tears for people, and we turned our back on 20 million girls and women like they were nothing, and we have forgotten them. You know, Americans uh, develop amnesia very quickly. You know, this is how you, you put up with all these lost causes. And, and, and when I saw these, these women running for their lives and these young girls who will never have an education, I'm thinking, what is the point of a human rights-led foreign policy? if you're not going to do anything about it, you know, the people say that everyone has the right in, to do things. Well, now Afghanistan has the right to return 20 million people to Sharia law, which is exactly what they've done. So what have we done in, in, in Afghanistan? Nothing. We've accomplished nothing. And I, I said this on air a couple of times and had some former SAS soldiers threaten me. <laughs> oh, we did an important job there. Well, we may have done an important job surviving, but we didn't do these people any favors. And so, you know, uh, there's this famous uh, sinologist, uh, John Fairbank at uh, Harvard, who argued uh, during and after the Vietnam War. He says, uh, be careful about entering any conflict where you're cultural blind. He says, the trouble is you don't know anything about the place. You know, in Vietnam, we didn't know anything about Buddhism or rice culture or that neck of the woods. And, and he said, and, and the worst part about the Vietnam experience is not only where we're ignorant, is that when we got out, we were ignorant of our ignorance. We don't even know we screwed it up. We don't even know how badly we missed the mark. And the same thing uh, when uh, we tried to, when we were going to invade uh, uh, Iraq proper, the, the, the French uh, uh, representative uh, says to the American representative, I wrote a little book about how this was uh, all done. He says to him, you, you realize you're going to go into Iraq. You're going to go into a place it's a th couple thousand years old. You're going to go into a place of, uh, you know, Alibaba and the seven thieves. You don't know anything about these people. You don't speak their language. You have no idea of how, how they organize themselves or about tribalism and, and these religions, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, uh, you're desi it, it's designed to fail. And so a lot of American foreign policy is designed to fail because we enter places without knowing anything about it. And, you know, and you know, the American model of government, and it looks a little rough to people on the outside, like, you know, if you're going to kill, have 331 mass killings in, since January. It's, it, you know, the, the American government, the American plan, the business model, 
doesn't fit everywhere. I, I met a, uh, a uh, I was in for a job once in New Zealand and I was having dinner with an Irish lady who was a great expert on the potato famine. And we're having a, a Guinness in, in, in Dunedin at dinner and she picks up this Guinness and she says, she's from Dublin, she says, you know, she says, no joke, Guinness doesn't travel very well. She said it's like American politics. It just doesn't fit in other places. It doesn't taste the same way. And she's right. Uh, American, the American model of life, American model of governance, like Guinness, just doesn't travel very well. Well, I don't <laughs> think we can top that, Joe. <laughs> I think that's a great place to I end. I feel like we've only just scratched the surface, Joe. Like I think we, we, We've run out of time today, but we, get, we are going to have to get you back because I feel like there's so much more to discuss. Well, that's okay. That's okay. I'm available. I've tried to do some of these broad, uh, uh, these these broad stroke things. So uh, I, I I I like the idea that we have to think big. You know, when I was a kid and I went to the Louvre for the first time, uh, I saw the Mona Lisa, which was this little pissy thing, and then I saw these great canvases on these walls, Delacroix, rape of the Sabine women, and the raft of the Medusa, and I saw these big beautiful paintings, and I'm thinking. I like the broad strokes. I like the big canvas. And, you know, the, the, the sheet it back again to Australian education. We're not offering many uh, Australian kids an opportunity to have a broad brush education. We're not looking at the big canvas. You know, they enter these little narrow courses and they get these little jobs they're supposed to at the end. I don't know whether the millennials want to go to work or not. But the point is, is that uh, we're, we're not offering people a chance to see history at work. And, you know, nothing's changed from antiquity. Human nature remains the same. Power remains the same. Power, politics is still a struggle for power. And we don't know how it works or, or what we should be doing about it. And, and uh, I think it, it, we, we, we've got to return to uh, universities that, that create these, uh, these critical minds that are based on historical lessons. I mean, you know, I've been arguing how can you look at the war in Ukraine without looking at the First World War? I mean, you know, little Sarajevo drags anybody in the way Kaliningrad might drag everybody in if the uh, it becomes a target uh, for the Russians uh, who have, have troops there, as a matter of fact. And in other words, there are a lot of historical lessons out there. And I've always taken great pride in applying history to political problems. And there is nothing under the sun that we haven't seen before. The only trouble is, is we haven't seen it. We, we don't know it's there. And so like John Fairbanks says about the Americans in Vietnam, they're not only ignorant, but they're ignorant of their ignorance. And so you can't go run around the world cultural blind and try and solve all these problems. You can help. Sometimes you can even help by standing back. But you now this idea of rushing in and trying to put the, uh, give them the model, the business model, and then you leave, and the business model doesn't work very well, and it goes back to what they were doing in the first place. And you leave all the millions and millions of people behind. In Vietnam, we killed over 2 million civilians, and it was all there on American television, which is why American television no longer shows war on television, because it's a bad idea. You know, they, don't, they know that was a bad idea. That's why the Gulf Wars were fought very clinically, with all uh, Pentagon-approved images, et cetera, et cetera. It's very hard to see these kinds of things. So, um, look, we got a lot of work ahead, and I mean, I'm not giving up on, uh, on what we can solve, but we're going to have to produce a generation of young men and women who uh, have a creative capacity to, uh, to get us through the next 100 years.
Uh, can we make it or not? I don't know. But I'll tell you what, Australia is doomed if they don't try. I mean, the idea that Australia has a future without uh, solutions is ridiculous. Australia would, does not have to go on and on. Australia could disappear. And I like to point out to uh, Australians who don't agree with me that there are entire civilizations represented in the British Museum, these little uh, hieroglyphics on a wall, who disappeared from the face of the earth, who were a lot smarter than we are. You know, they invented the wheel and steel and things like that. There have been brighter people on this earth who've disappeared uh, because, I mean, compared with us. And the idea that we're going to survive forever is a nonsense. And so, you know, we're going to have to think very hard about what we do with universities, what we do with our young people, because, you know, when I arrived, Australia had about 14 million people. Here it is 50 years later, Australia's got, what, 26 million people? It's not like the place is getting too big, as a matter of fact. And so we got to take all the talented people we have, and, and, and we have to produce people who think critically, whether it's engineering, science, history, whatever it is. We, we have to return to the, we have to allow universities to produce these critical minds again. And I, I hope universities can step up. And I hope uh, universities can make allies with politicians who can step up. Uh, but I haven't seen much of that because uh, uh, universities are not in, in favor in a lot of places because they look like uh, they vote for the wrong party and they look like they cost a lot of money, et cetera, et cetera. Well, look, survival is cost, you know, <laughs> if you don't pay for it, you know, survival looks like you could pay anything for it if you're going down the tubes. And there are people who I say who are smarter than we are who disappeared from the face of the earth. So Australians, you know, this is this is my lesson, is that it, it's it's all happening right now, except we just have to become more aware of it. So you guys are aware of it. You know, you're doing this for, you're thinking out loud and you're asking all kinds of questions. And you don't even care if anyone disagrees with you. And they're free, free to disagree with you. Fine, disagree with me. Uh, but the point is, is that there are things that you can't ignore. And that is Australia's role in the world. What role should it play? Is it really a small to middle power? Does it really have to hook up with a great and powerful friend to survive? And does it have to fight every war with these people uh, to survive? I mean, I don't know if that's possible. I don't know if that's possible. But I do know this, that in all the wars Australia's fought, it's lost fewer and fewer men and women over the years, and it's got a place at the high table. So Australia's in a position right now, diplomatically, to contribute without having to disappear um, terms of manpower so you know i think the opportunity is there well i hope we don't disappear uh until uh before we get to talk to you again uh and have chapter two joe th you've been so generous with your time th thank you so much today for for uh you know uh, well, it's just so great to talk to someone with with your history and your experience and and i can't wait to do it again thanks joe